Well, welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, along with Dr. Kenneth Howell, co-host, and we're coming to you from the studios at the Coming Home Network International. Um, you can, just in case you're just joining us, you can uh, connect with us at deepinscripture.com, hear all the old programs. We'd love to have an email from you to hear whether this uh, program's an encouragement to you, uh, or if you have any questions. And uh, we're in the process of uh, getting close to the end of a, of a long study of the book of Romans. Today we'll look at Romans chapter 14, verse 22, through chapter 15, verse 13. And uh, in, to a certain extent, um, I mean, really, the book of Romans was originally written to be read in one setting. Um, today, admittedly, modern culture doesn't we have a hard time with attention span, so it's hard to get anyone to sit down and read Romans all the way through, but it can be done easily. Uh, and it ought to be done many times, actually. So it's hard to get the entire context into a, a short period. But in this section, we're, we're wrapping up a long discussion that began many chapters ago, and we'll try and talk about that in a moment. A lot of the things we'll be looking at in our passage today is examining... Uh, the necessity of recognizing that at the core of the relationships we have with other Christians or with non-Christians living in our community, in our culture, at our workplace, um, you know, trying to live together, trying to live out our faith, at the very core of this, when you set all of that aside, is a relationship we have individually with God. And that in the formation of our conscience as we stand before God, clear before him, um, unguarded. You know, that at the core of our faith helps us understand how to live our relationships outside of that intimacy we have with God, if we have that intimacy. And so we see that that intimacy we have with God should confront us, so we recognize our need to uh, not seeking only to please ourselves, but to reach out, and how do we put the other first? Of course, that's living out the teachings of our Lord Jesus. We'll talk about the importance of Scripture as a foundation, as an encouragement to the steadfastness to which we are called to live out our faith, what we've received, as Paul would say. First uh, Corinthians 15, he passes on that which he has received, and uh, uh, Second Thessalonians, he calls them to stand firm to that which they've received. So the steadfastness, living it out, but it's it's also connected to Scripture. There's a reason we have Scripture, and it talk. Well, we'll look at how this calls us to to not only live together in community, but how we can worship together in the liturgy uh, with joy and peace. And he'll bring us back to some scriptural foundations to how the church is to be made up of all people. He'll give Old Testament background to his apologetics of why the faith is opened up not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles and to all. And, uh, and then this will be all wrapped up together in a couple wonderful doxologies in which Paul is praying for uh, his parishioners, essentially, to grow in peace and joy by the power of the Spirit. So this is what we're going to look at today. Before we get to that, though, we have a short email, which we'd like to cover first in the program. 
Um, and this email came closely on the uh, tail end of Easter Sunday. And it reads, On Easter, the epistle reading included, quote, If then you were raised with Christ, seek what is above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. End of quote. And that was from Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. And then the emailer writes, I know we admit to believing this in the creed, but what does it mean, seated at the right hand of God? And actually, I love that quote because I remember as a father sitting in church with my young'uns, and I'm trying to teach them, uh, you know, what to believe and, and what, what they're hearing in church or what they've picked up in Sunday school or as they learn the creed later in catechism. And I can't remember where I first heard this, but it was a, a little boy who apparently said that he knew that God was left-handed because Jesus was sitting at his, on his right hand. <laughs> How do you explain what it means? What do we mean when we recite every week in the creed that Christ was seated at the right hand of God. And again, I'm pa- I read the email. I'll pass it on first to you, my friend. <laughs> well, that's a wonderful story about the kids. <laughs> and, and kids have that tendency, right, to do things um, overly, literally. Um, the uh, Catechism actually addresses this somewhat in uh, paragraph 663 when it's trying to explain what does it mean that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. It quotes from... <clears throat> St. John Damascene's uh, The Orthodox Faith, who was a great uh, St. John of Damascus, remember the great Christian theologian who lived under uh, actually uh, Islamic rulers in Damascus in the, uh, let's see, that would have been the uh, 8th century. Um, St. John says in The Orthodox Faith, by the Father's right hand we understand the glory and honor of divinity where he who exists as son of God before all ages, indeed as God, of one being with the Father, is seated bodily after he became incarnate and his flesh was glorified. Uh, St. John seems to be saying here that we can only speak of Jesus as being at the right hand of the Father after his incarnation. So that before his incarnate, the pre-incarnate Son of God, the, the verbum, the, the logos, the, uh, the word of God, uh, as one with the Father before, and could not be said to, to dwell at the right hand of the Father. And I think he might be onto something here because this expression in the right hand of God occurs uh, many times in the Old Testament, but one of them is Psalm 110 where it begins, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. To sit at the right hand of the king was to uh, be able to receive his authority, his power, and to be able to administer that authority and that power in the kingdom. And so uh, when, when, it, when it speaks of Jesus as sitting at the right hand of God, it's drawing upon all that ancient Near Eastern uh, language and, and culture and custom to say that now as the God-man, Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, is actually received all the authority and the power of God, and that with God the Father, he reigns for eternity over the universe. And so 
this is the great uh, the great comfort in a sense that the church has through the midst of all of her uh, trials and difficulties is that Christ being seated at the right hand of God nothing is beyond his power nothing is outside of his providential uh, guidance uh, Marcus you you may remember that t- just today as we're speaking is the um, memorial of Saint Martin the first who was the last Pope ever to be martyred in the seventh century because he stood up against the monothelite oh. heresy and he was he was left to die in basically in a prison the reason that that how could a man already now in the seventh century when a lot of the Roman world was Christianized in some sense how could he experience such pain and what comfort did he have well the comfort he could have looked at uh, was that Christ is now at the right hand of God God has left nothing undone and even in my my suffering and my death God is glorified and Christ is still king yeah the the this reminds me Ken once again of the blessing that the church is that our Lord gave us uh, to help us keep a balance on the mysteries because as human beings um, God is just not a bigger human being that screams louder right you know he's a spirit and he's so far above us that it's hard for us to imagine and we're limited by, you know, our humanity and, and what we've experienced through our senses. That's it. And we imagine. But the danger is, and Ken, I know you were a perfect pastor. I was, you know, far from it. But, you know, many times as a, as a Presbyterian pastor, taking difficult theological concepts and trying to explain them to people, even explaining heaven, what's heaven like? Um... You know, how do we have Jesus being 100% divine and 100% human being? I mean, that's the monothelite heresy. Did he have one or two wills? Well, how do we how do we imagine a person with two wills? Exactly. You know, that sounds schizophrenic to me. You know, in our humanity, how do we do that? So we, we so the point is, how do we keep the mysteries with? But at the same time, holding on to the mysteries. Uh, and as a pastor, we would find ourselves tempted to explain things away, to make them easier for our people. Yeah. And we were often overstepping boundaries. And we yeah. were stuck in the, the danger of the either-or, as opposed to the, the need to accept the both-and of many things. Well, I don't mean to be a critical of any particular Christian tradition, but I mean, if people study the history carefully enough, what they will discover is that beginning in the 18th century, more in the 19th and especially in the 20th century, that what liberal Protestantism, uh, the part of the Presbyterian heritage that you and I were a part of, uh, but it's also true in Methodism and in Episcopalianism and even in Lutheranism, by liberal, I mean this tendency to particularize and to um, humanize the faith to the point where there's no more mystery involved. And people that think in that frame of mind, um, those pastors or churches, excuse me, 
or um, or theologians, they they want they either do one of two things: either they dismiss it as as irrelevant history, or they reinterpret it to be in a way that gets away, get, uh, destroys the mystery. You know, and in a more extreme form, but you do see this in the great uh, or the famous uh, New Testament scholar uh, Rudolf Bultmann around the mid 20th century. Bultmann basically, uh, with his, and it was called in German, Entmythologisierung, which we translated demythologized, he basically said the New Testament is a world of mythology that we have to now update by finding an appropriate philosophy of life that will express the same essence, but basically. So, I mean, the, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is irrelevant yeah. <laughs> in that way of thinking. Or the fact that he was 100% God, 100% man, irrelevant. And this is why I've discovered since I've been a Catholic that Catholics are absolutely baffled by this. And rightly so. Yeah. And I always say to them, I say, you know what? Your your bafflement is exactly mine as well. And that's one reason why I couldn't remain where I was, precisely because the New Testament is not denying the physical the material reality, Jesus is 100% man. He really rose from the dead physically. But it's not limited to that. It's also saying that behind all of that, there is an even greater mystery than we can possibly imagine. And that's what I think you were getting at when you were saying that we often think of God as like one stair step above us, right? Whereas God is so infinitely above us. And this is what it said in the, yesterday we celebrated Divine Mercy Sunday, and I remember in the devotions of the Divine Mercy, it says, uh, Divine Mercy incomprehensible to angels and saints. Hmm. No matter where we are in heaven, even to the angels can't comprehend God. God is so far above us. And yet it's that very same God that became flesh and man and dwelt among us. And as Paul says here in our chapter for today, he says, this Christ came into the world not to please himself, but to be a servant of all. Yeah, I'm thinking of uh, Philippians 2, where we have the great hymn that summarizes the whole Christological um, salvific act of our Lord Jesus. Um, and in the end of that, he says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And and that one simple, it's it's portraying the infinite of the of the sun coming down to our existence. But then verse nine says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name that as the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every con tongue confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That long verse is Paul's way of explaining what it means that Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father. Yeah. That's yeah. Paul's way of saying it, is that because of his obedience, his complete, utter surrender on the one hand, he's raised all the way to the right hand of the Father, yeah. uh, back to the glory that he had 
in a unique situation now, which is beyond our ability to understand. But that's why the church is, that's why we need the church to make sure that in our little creative ways of explaining things that are a bit beyond us, that we don't go too far over the edge, like, you know, St. Martin had to defend way back when, and Maxim, I think it was Max the Confessor, who was the main person. You know, these guys are there following the teaching of the church, willing to die for it. Absolutely. But, But know the envelopes. And in, in some ways, it's a good way of bringing us back to our scripture study because what we try to do in this deep in scripture study is looking at the book of Romans, but making sure we're looking at it within the rule of faith. You know, it's not just Ken and I here uh, expanding out in our own creative ideas, but yet given the faith that we've received— to which hopefully by the grace of God, as Paul says in verse 4, that we are by grace being steadfast, encouraged by the scriptures, that within that we look at the book of Romans and we recognize that there are layers to understanding any book of the Bible. There is the literal situation to which Paul was writing, but the Holy Spirit was guiding Paul in his writing through his through Paul's words but yet the message that Paul was writing to those unique, specific Christians in Rome has a longer message to a wider audience that reaches us today. And so we look at how we apply that. And uh, last week we looked at chapter 14, but we didn't really finish 14. There were the last two verses of chapter 14 that we didn't have time to address. But Ken, I, I think the more I've looked at this all week, Uh, the more I become convinced that uh, what Paul was doing in verses 22 and 23 of of Romans 14 is he was was cutting through all the stuff he's been saying to remind the people that underneath everything he said back in in Romans 12.1 when he was saying, don't be conformed to the world, be transformed through the renewal of your mind. Okay, what does that mean? What does that mean? How does that play out in relationship to government and taxes and living with one another and all that? When all that's said and done, the transformation of our mind at the core happens in the privacy between us and God. On the outside of our lives, through our words and our actions, uh, we can give a completely false image of what's really going on inside between us and God. On the other hand, it can grow to become a a clear expression of our relationship with God. And so our relationships with one another and what we eat or drink or what days we celebrate, that's what Paul's been dealing with. The decisions we make on that and what we approve or disapprove, what we as parents tell our kids or, you know, what we publicly approve comes out of something. It comes out of our conscience. Or does it come out of our passions? Is it driven by our feelings? Or what are the priorities? Is it because at the core of our being, our one goal is to please ourselves, Or is it to please God? Is, you know, there's the question. And I think, Ken, that's what he's, that's what he's getting at as he, it, to me, it's as if he pauses the, the flowing argument 
And then in verse 22 and 23, here's what Paul says. He says, the faith, and, and I'm reading from the Revised Standard Version. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Happy is he who has no reason to judge himself for what he approves. But he who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not act from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, those are strong words. And they can be pulled out of context and applied in a lot of different ways. But it seems to me, Ken, that the beginning is that in verse 22, that it could be misunderstood, as I've almost heard people say, that's, well, Paul's saying to keep our faith between ourselves and God. So in other words, it's a private thing. You know, that I don't need to talk about my faith. I go do my worship on Sunday, and that's between me and God. And what I believe about something, that's between me and God. Or, you know, issues like abortion or contraception or these issues, well, that's between me and God. That's what Paul says. I do not believe that's what Paul means at all, because if that's what Paul meant, we would never have heard from Paul, because Paul himself would have stayed in Tarsus and never gone on a missionary journey. So Paul knew at the core of his being that our faith is not to be between ourselves and God, because Jesus said we are to be salt and light in the world. He did not say to keep our faith under a bushel. He said, give that bushel a kick and let our faith out. That's the point. So what Paul must mean in verse 22 is that the faith that you have between you and God, you must keep. You must keep it. I mean, Ken, yeah. that is, that is a, a real challenge. It, it sure is. And, and maybe that's why he goes on in chapter 15 to speak about the the God of all endurance. And, and that's what we need so desperately. He says... In the end of the text, uh, excuse me, this is in verse uh, verse 5 of 15, may the God of endurance and of consolation give you to be, you know, to be um, united with one another, according to Christ Jesus. Um, it's interesting, this, this verse 22 that you mentioned, the RSV has translated it, the faith you have keep between yourself and God, which might lead somebody to that idea that all I need is private faith, and then you retranslated it. I think, well, hold this faith. Another way to, to think of it, too, though, is that verse 22 might mean faith not in the sense of the fullness of all that we believe as Christians or Catholics, but he means the faith that you have with regard to the eating and the drinking. That Remember he's talking about in chapter 14 about this dispute about, you know, well, should I eat just vegetables or can I eat anything? And he calls the one who can eat anything in good conscience, one who is strong, and the one who has these scruples, this overly scrupulous idea that he can only eat vegetables. That's a person who he calls weak. But the point that he gets to in between verse 17 and 22 is that love ought to govern everything that we do so that we don't destroy one another, uh, and we don't destroy one another's faith by our uh, the way that we live. Now, I can give you an illustration of that, but I think what Paul is saying here, okay, you have a certain faith, a certain position of faith that you've come to about these matters, about whether you should eat the vegetables or eat meat or whatever it is. That's something that in yourself you should keep in the presence of God. Don't use that as a weapon 
to destroy your brother. Um, as a practical illustration of this, a friend of mine who is a professor at another university, uh, he's a very devout Catholic and very good friends with one of the local priests there. And, and uh, <clears throat> the priest was having, they were having lunch and the priest said something like, you know, I don't quite understand it. I mean, it seems like the people um, of our area or our diocese, it seems like they don't really respect or listen to what the clergy is saying about the faith that much, you know. And uh, I don't know why. And my friend said, well, Father, and they're very good friends. I mean, they could be very honest with one another. And he said, you know, one reason why that maybe people don't trust the church or trust the faith or trust priests or whatever, it could be that look at the way a lot of priests are living. They're living on, they're living on these, um, on paper, it doesn't look like they, they make much money. But when everything in their life is paid for by some expense account, uh, they really don't suffer very much. <laughs> and so maybe they're res uh, hesitant to give money to the church because they don't see an example of, um, of sacrificial living. And I think it was a point well worth taking. Maybe that's true for all of us. And I think that's what Paul is saying. I could live a certain way. I have the freedom of conscience to do so. But for the sake of love, for the sake of my brother, I'm going to, I'm going to volunteer, voluntarily choose, to live a more um, self-sacrificial life. You know, Ken, I love every week working with you on this program, and you know, we we don't have the chance to do our study together, and then we come together. And I don't think I've ever disagreed with you in all these years, but I'm going to disagree with you on interpretation of this passage and have fun with okay. it. Only That's because, fine. only because, and uh, this I think you and I absolutely agree on, and that is people can misinterpret things. Kind of like 22. Yeah, yeah. 22 means, hey, I just keep it between myself and God, you know. And <laughs> what I hear are politicians that uh, take positions on abortion. They say, well, you know, personally, I believe one way. Oh, I see. Yeah. You know, and 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 I, and what I think is happening here, and and what I think is that Paul is is addressing a a deeper fundamental truth that then forms the foundation for how people live out their relationships, dreams with the eat or drink, and that foundational ideas is where do the convictions down deep come from that then set your convictions for these other things. And we'll come back, talk about that a little bit after the break. Uh, because if our convictions are based on the wrong foundations, they lead to sin. We'll talk about that in a bit. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program. and like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you. 
What do all these have in common? A former agnostic, a fallen away Catholic, and a once upon a time Protestant. Find out next time on The Journey Home. Marcus Grodi invites pilgrims from all walks of life to share how they made it home to the Catholic Church. The Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi and Dr. Kenneth Howell. We're looking at Romans chapter 14, 22 through 15, 13. I'm assuming if you're listening that you may have the opportunity to open up your Bible or go online rather than us reading everything here. Um, just to go back to what Ken and I uh, were talking about and um, uh, looking at the same coin from two different sides, I think. You know, when I look at this whole passage from Romans 14:22 all the way through 15:13. It seems like the underlying thing that Paul is addressing is something that he addresses elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 13 when he talks about the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. And they're all referred to in this passage. He talks about faith all the way through um, and believing. And he talks about hope. He doesn't mention the word charity but that's what he's talking about, how to live together, live out our faith, in love with one another. And that these, these virtues of faith, hope, and love lead to one another. Faith that we receive as a gift leads to growing in hope, all a gift of God which empowers us to love one another, and they can work backwards. If we aren't loving, we can lose the hope, we can lose the faith. And can I, I think one of the things that was the biggest changes in my understanding of theology when I became a Catholic from my Presbyterian Calvinism was a statement made by Father Garrigou Lagrange when he said that in the ways of God, he who does not progress loses ground. There, mm, yeah. there, there's not a sense in which once we've accepted Jesus, we've arrived. That the, the keeping of our faith, the, the faith that we have, that we've been received as a gift between ourselves and God, each person, though we're called to live in community, let, yet each person will be responsible before God for this gift of faith and hope and love that we've received, that unless we progress in that, we will lose it. There's, there's no, as Paul says, or as the writer of Hebrews says, and he says about uh, that we will never see God unless we grow in holiness. And the catechism teaches that um, even if we're Catholics, we can't be saved unless we persevere in charity. So there's this growing. And so that's how I interpret this whole section here, is that the underlying, <coughs> the underlying theology, spirituality behind 
the convictions that we have in our community, what we eat, what we drink, what days we celebrate, whether we play cards or um, Ken's going to get a, a pause. He's going to get a, a he'll be back in a second. But all these things that we we have convictions about how we live together are based on this faith, this deep convictions in our heart. And they need to come from that. If we don't keep that, persevere in that, nurture that, which involves humility, involves turning and surrendering, um, then we can, we can grow away from it. We can lose that if we don't persevere in it. And where this, as the, as the phrase goes, where the rubber meets the road is in those areas of friction that we have with our brothers and sisters on these issues, whether it's something as seemingly insignificant of what we eat or what we drink, maybe what we wear on a Sunday, what we wear on a day off, uh, what we keep in our refrigerator, what we do on our, our fun days, or whether we, these, these big convictions about marriage in our culture, the convictions about family, uh, abortion, contraception, homosexuality. What are our convictions? Some might say, well, I'm just going to keep that between me and Jesus. Well, that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying that the convictions that we have on those issues needs to be based on this relationship that we have with God because, as he said in the previous chapter, we will stand before God for what we have done, what we believe. Uh, and every, every week in Mass, we say, you know, I have greatly sinned in what I have thought and what I have said and what, and what I have done and what I have failed to do. You know, those are the, the convictions. And what we do with our lives is important, and it must not come from doubt. Uh, shooting from the hip, the situation, situation ethics, Ken, right? That isn't what mm -hmm. determines what we do or our convictions, what we tell. It should be all coming through this deeper a relationship that we have with God. That should be the foundation of our conscience. And can I believe that with that is the understanding, that's why in verse 1 of 15, he goes back to, the argument, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. I think it's partially that once, when we take a step back and examine our, in, our relationship with God, that we may realize that we're not as strong as we think. Yeah. And, sometimes we're in the category of the strong and sometimes we're in the category of the weak. So the, um, Exactly. And, um, you know, there should always be always be the growing self-examination of a person who's walking with Jesus is is examining ourselves kind of like when Jesus just a couple weeks ago in, in the upper room when Jesus says one of you would betray me and every one of them said is it me well you know every once in a while we're walking with Jesus we say hey Jesus is it me mm -hmm. have I failed am I a weak one am I am I leading others astray uh uh, am, am I pulling your weak ones away from you? Um, and so, you know, Ken, I think behind that is are these convictions, all right? <clears throat> and well, the uh, go ahead. 
No, I was just going to say, I think um, this sense of um, conviction that you're talking about is grounded in what Paul says here, where he gives us the example of Christ himself. When he says, don't, you know, each of you should not, should please his neighbor for the good, for edification, that is for building up your neighbor. Uh, because he says, even Christ didn't please himself, but the reproaches of those who reproached you fall on me. He's quoting from Psalm um, 69 there, in which the psalmist is saying, the, to God, those that were reproaching you are now that's falling on me as well. In other words, the Christian voluntarily takes the position of being a servant. No one can force you to be a servant. That's slavery. But we can voluntarily choose to make ourselves servants to others. And, of course, we see that most um, poignantly in our priests and our religious. When they make the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, they are saying, I'm here to be a servant. I'm here among you as a servant. And so Paul here is saying, but that's true for all of us. I can't remember, Marcus, if it was you and I were talking about it or someone else, but it was reminded recently that in our baptism, already there is a commitment to the three uh, so the evangelical councils. In other words, every one of us is called to poverty, chastity, obedience. It's only a question of how we're going to live that out in our particular life. So, for example, chastity is different for a priest and a celibate priest than it is for a married man. But we're both called to chastity. Uh, obedience in, in the same way. What Paul here is trying to do is to instill in these Roman Christians, both Jew and Gentile, a sense of fully accepting one another within the body of Christ. And that's what he goes on in verse 7 to say. Therefore, receive one another as Christ has received you for the glory of God. Christ became a servant, you become a servant. And this probably would have been difficult for the Jews because they were the natural heirs of Jesus' message, the kingdom of God. But Jesus saying, it might be saying, you Jewish Christians, you consider yourself strong, but you've got to bear the burdens and the difficulties of the weak. Um, because these Gentile Christians, because they haven't had the background, the experience that you have had. So consider yourself a servant to them. You know, he's called to live in harmony with one another in verse 5. God, we're going to come back to something else. But uh, to me, the, again, this whole section deals with the need of every Christian to be growing in in the formation of conscience uh, so that when we live out our convictions, when we say something, do something, that we have grown to the place of where we're examining our words and our actions before we do them. And to me, that's the, the growth in Christ. In every one of Paul's letters, almost every one that I can think of, 
he talks about putting off the old, putting on the new. There's this journey. It's in Romans from chapter 7 and chapter 8. It's in Philippians, the old is gone, the new is gone, forgetting what lies behind and press onward. It's in Colossians and Ephesians, put on the new man, put off the old man. It's in almost every single one of his letters because he realizes that it's a constant, constant battle. And even though we as children, innocent little children, were born with consciences that has a part of that conscience, the spark of the natural law, that depending on the environment in which we grew, that conscience could have been either encouraged or it could have been squelched. And then there are people who don't even give a, a thought to the effect that their words or actions will have on other people. They'll say it, they'll do it, and maybe yeah. they don't even feel a sense of guilt. They don't even yeah. look back on it. They just say or do it. But the, yeah. the change that grace can make in a person is at least they maybe start looking back and say, whoa, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't yeah. have done that. And maybe it's when you bring someone to Mass and they hear us say, you know, uh, and, and ask that our brothers and sisters, uh, you know, we confess our sins, what we've said and, and thought and done or not done. And someone says, whoa, you know, I, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done it. That's a work of grace. And pretty yes, soon yeah. over time, the distance between that realization and what you do gets smaller and smaller and smaller until hopefully we're following the rules of, uh, where is it? It's in James chapter 1, where James says, in 119, he says, Know this, my beloved brethren, let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. So pretty soon, it's flip-flops so that we're thinking ahead of time about the effect that our words will have, our actions, our convictions will have. And that may be that many wise people seem to get quieter as they grow in spirituality, Ken, because they start to realize yeah. that we all, even a Mother Teresa, uh, yeah. recognizing the end, how weak they are to the very end. They don't become arrogant about it. They recognize, mm -hmm. you know, you know, but for the grace of God, go I. Well, you, you, you and I both, Marcus, have experienced uh, in the last few years the death of our parents. Mm -hmm. Now, my mother is, is still living, but one of the things that I noticed about both my parents, my wife's parents, as they're getting older, <clears throat> There's a tendency for them to, and this probably is just a function of age, there's a tendency then for them to be less aware of their words or their effects upon other people. Uh, now, some people bring more of that to life than others. And me, for example, I'm definitely one of those. I mean, you talk about needing to bite my tongue. Wow. Uh, I didn't do that much when I was a young man, and I'm hoping that grace will overcome that. But you're absolutely right. The as we grow in grace, we then begin. We first begin to say, "How can I be a um, person or an occasion for building up, for edification for this person?" And when I ask that question, then that makes me think, "Okay, well, maybe I need to be a little less vocal about this particular situation. Maybe I need to let others." Um, speak in this situation or do something and it's a struggle every day in marriage and, and raising children uh, it's a struggle to um, 
to grow to the point where, uh, because as we do get older, we're going to become naturally less that way. Yeah, we're going to have less control of ourselves, and, yeah. and there, so we have to. There's a person uh, I won't mention any names uh, to, to uh, protect the innocence of, uh, but um, who it's as if it never crosses this person's mind to think ahead of time that what they're what they're going to say might have a deleterious effect on another person. And mm-hmm. if you confront this person on it, they'll say, well, that's not my responsibility. I can't help all the people react to what I say. That's their problem. <laughs> and, uh, he, well, maybe to a certain extent we don't let the world run us, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about to the extent yeah. that we are to show love for our brother. We are to let each of us please his neighbor for his good, not ours. To edify mm-hmm. him, not us. My favorite mm-hmm. verse in the Old Testament, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he'll direct your paths. It doesn't say in all your ways acknowledge yourself. Mm-hmm. It says acknowledge him. So even looking for the good of our neighbor is acknowledging him because he modeled it for us in verse 3. For Christ did not please himself. It doesn't mean that Christ did everything to please everybody around him. Remember, Peter said at one point, uh, hey, don't you do that when Peter, when Jesus said he was going to go to the cross. You don't want to do that. And Jesus said, what? Satan, get thee behind me. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't about trying to just please Peter so that Peter set up all his convictions, nor was it about Jesus pleasing himself because he may not have wanted to go on the cross. He says at Gethsemane, not my will, but thine. The model is our Lord who knows what's truth, lets that truth guide his love for others. Well, you know, it's very similar to what you're saying, I think is what Paul says in verse 8 here. He says, for I tell you that Christ became a servant of the circumcised to show on behalf of God's truth. In this version, it says to show God's truthfulness. It could be simply translated in behalf of the truth of God, that he might confirm the promises of the fathers uh, to to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. In other words, Christ's attitude of service had a purpose to it, and it was to bring God's truth into the world. And because we are Christianos, as they say in Greek, Christianos, we are little Christs, we too are to become servants in the behalf of the truth of God. In other words, it's not about whether we're right, it's about whether God's truth is being executed or plain, uh, uh, proclaimed in this particular situation. And that may mean, in some instances, that we'll have to you know, eat humble pie and say, I was wrong, you know, God is right here, or you were the other person, you were speaking God's truth, I was mistaken at this point. Um, and boy, this is really, really tough to do. Um, I mean, Paul, I, Paul's not giving us any uh, assurances that yeah. we're going to be able to do this very easily. In fact, he, I think he sort of implies the opposite when he says, may the God of all endurance and consolation give you to live in harmony in other words, it's going to take supernatural grace to be able to do this because we're not going to be able to live this out um, by ourselves. And that's what's so beautiful about the church. 
You know, I've been reading recently, uh, I think I mentioned it maybe a week or so ago, uh, Henri de Lubac's The Splendor of the Church. And this is one of the things that comes out in that book, is how through all of the failings of popes and bishops and priests and people through the church, uh, internal battles, external battles, God has put something beautiful within the church, and that's the presence of the Spirit in the hearts of the people. And it overcomes the barriers, all of the difficulties that could tear the church apart. God is filling the church with his spirit. He's filling the church with the spirit of harmony in order that in verse six, with one voice or with one heart, you may glorify with one voice, sorry, with one voice, one mouth, you may glorify God unanimously the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's you know, God's goal. I can't help but think that behind verse 8, uh, Paul might have been at least thinking about that troublesome passage where Jesus is approached by, I think, the Samaritan woman who wants him to heal her child. And, uh, you know, Jesus is putting her off, remember? Kept putting her oh, off yes. and putting her off right. and putting her right. off. She keeps going back, putting her off. And then at one point he says, hey, I've come here for the, for the Jews. You know, he says that, and it's a troubling passage. And then that's, talk, that's where they talk about, you know, the dogs and, you, right. only, you know, not. And, uh, but the woman is heard for her perseverance and receives the healing. But behind Thanks. that is the point here is that Jesus had a bigger plan. The, mm -hmm. He knew the big plan. As it was portrayed in the patriarchs in verse eight and a half here, you know, to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, that's why he came to the Jews, to the circumcised, to fulfill their prophecies, yeah. to, to then continue to fulfill what they had said is going to happen, but should have happened all along, and that is that the, the truth of God was not merely for the circumcised, it was for the world. The Old Testament word was the nations. And then from verse 9 and 10 and 11, Paul reaches back into his, uh, his bag of apologetic arguments to defend anyone that would challenge him on why these Gentiles are in the church. He has a quick set of quotes, boom, 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 from the Psalms and Deuteronomy and Isaiah, where all along God has been saying that the truth of God was to go to the nations. Well, he's coming right back to chapter one, isn't he, of where, where he started. Because he was saying that this gospel that he was preaching, that he was now going to try to take to Spain as he came through Rome, Paul says that this gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Greek or to the Gentile. That's what he's coming right back to here. He, but what he's saying is, look, it was prophesied in this in the Jewish scriptures that the nations would become part of this uh, worldwide body of people that would praise the name of God. So learn how to live with one another. There are times in the history of our Catholic Church where you know, nations have been, Catholic nations have been against war with Catholic nation, you know, mm -hmm. or where, like in the case of, I think it was the 14th century, early 14th century, where the the Catholic uh, king of France was, you know, ready to go in and, and do the Pope in and, and vice versa, because they, they perhaps hadn't listened to what Paul was saying here about receive one another 
as Christ has received you. Um, this body of people throughout all the earth, that's what the church really is. Uh, and by the way, it just grew by about a million members this past Easter vigil, uh, for which we're thankful to God. But the more members, the more problems you got, right? <laughs> so Paul is saying here, the fundamental principle is this, receive one another as Christ has received you. Back in verse 4, we jumped over this quickly. Paul says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. And that's true for the first century Christians looking at the Old Testament. It's true for us 21st century Christians looking at the entire Holy Scriptures that the church has given us. He says that by steadfastness and by encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And in that phrase, by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the Scriptures, what we really see there is the full uh, apostolic faith. It isn't merely Bible alone there because of the word steadfastness. What are they being steadfast to? It's not just steadfast to this written word. It's steadfastness to the faith they've received that is encouraged by the Scriptures. And then verse 5, may the God of steadfastness and encouragement, we see the repetition of the words, reminds us that the source of that tradition and the written Scriptures is God. Our ability to be steadfast and to be encouraged by the Scriptures comes from God. It's a gift we received. And Ken, because of time, jump down to 13. It's because of the Holy Spirit that fills us. And this whole context is not just living together in community, but living together in worship, isn't it, Ken? And that the Spirit is the one that gives us the joy and peace that allows us to worship together. Well, if, if you compare verse 6 with verse 13, Marcus, it's almost as if Paul is speaking now the benediction at the end, like the priest gives in Mass. In verse 6, he says the reason for God, that he wants God to help them to live in harmony, is so that they can have one voice that glorifies God. And then the benediction comes, so may the God of all peace fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Yeah, and I know when I was a Protestant pastor, I used this as my doxology often, you know, to end, end worship because it is such a wonderful prayer for us uh, that we'd be steadfast in encouragement and that we'd live together and that the Holy Spirit would get out the dross and fill us with the joy and peace mm-hmm. uh, that are supposed to give us the hope that gives the strength to our community. Ken, again, thank you for being my partner in this and all of you, thank you for joining us on this program. Please go to deepinscripture.com, follow us on Facebook or Twitter, and please send us your emails. We'd love to hear from you. I do pray that this study is encouragement to your walk in Jesus Christ and his church. God bless you.